Whatever happened to Tang? I think it's still around. I still see Tang in the grocery store. Sure. Yeah. I don't think anybody, I don't know if anyone drinks it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, honestly, why would you? Like powdered orange juice? Why would I do that? I don't know. This is the AT Banter Podcast, a balanced and entertaining look at assistive technology, accessibility, and its importance in people's lives. Join Rob Minot, Ryan Fleury, and Steve Barclay as they banter with people around the world about anything and everything about assistive technology and the disability community. Now, on with the show. Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. My name is Rob Minot, and joining me today in the opposite corner, coming in at 225 pounds, (laughs) Ryan the Pinball Flurry. Hello, everybody, and no, I'm not 225 pounds. As a guess, I'm really bad at weight guessing weights. Well, we haven't seen each other in two years. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But even if we had, I don't know, is that about right? No, (laughs) no. Well, take off higher low. Take off about 27 pounds. Oh, really? Oh, what's good for you? See, sorry, I see. I (laughs) more more chunky than you are. Well, when we were at Aroga. You know, at one point I was 240. Oh, is that right? Okay. All that eating out and shit. Yeah, I was 240. And Uh, so I'm below 200 now. No, see, I don't feel so bad then. I wasn't that far off. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's good. Congratulations on losing the weight then. Thank you very much. Um, Not easy to do in a pandemic, let me tell you. (laughs) I tell you, I've eaten way more Doritos than I ever have. Doritos are so good. Can relate to that yep uh, uh how uh how are you doing i'm doing all right you know this is the final week that mr barkley is away so you know we're we're coming around the other side i'm looking forward to him being back school's going to be starting soon so things will definitely start picking up as well so it's all good i find it really funny that uh he that during his absence from the show, uh, we had like definitely shows that he would have totally been interested in. No, he like, great. We talked to Daryl Lennox, the comedian. <laughs> well, I love that. We talked about sex last week. <laughs> missed all the good shows. Well, we got to have a beer episode, and he can be all over that one. There you go. Uh, well, hey, speaking of which, uh, what are we? Uh, what are we up to today? Today we are speaking with David Moses, who is a post doctoral engineer at the University of California, who is joining us to talk all about a brain-computer interface they are working on. Yeah, this takes me way back into like the first year of the podcast um, in the episode that we did do on brain-computer interfaces. And I feel like that was like the first episode that we really did like a lot of research about. Yeah, there was one product, and I think we highlighted it, called the BrainPort, unless that came later, but... That seems no, to stick in my mind. Yeah, I think you're right. We talked about that. There was a there was a bunch of there was a bunch of like um, uh, mainstream sort of novelty devices where you could you know you'd wear like a little little electrodes on top of your on top of your head and you could do things like um, drive a remote control car and you could go up and down or you could go forward and back and left and right and right. you could kind of steer it with your brain waves. I'm doing the air quotes, brain waves. Um, so yeah, so that's the you know example of a very rudimentary sort of sort of mainstream device. Um, I don't even know where that space is these days. I don't know if you can still get those. There was another one called, I believe that was called the emotive headset. Because I think that the company that we were at for a while, we were kicking around the idea of picking that up as a as a product. Yeah, I don't nothing ever came of that. But yeah, so there was a few different 
products in that space, but this is completely different. This is, you know, the stuff that David is working on. These are actual implants that we're talking about. Um, and they're doing some pretty amazing stuff in that space since we've talked about it last. So it's, it's going to be interesting to talk to actually somebody who's working in that field. Yeah, absolutely. This is brain surgery. This isn't just, you know, electrodes, like you say, you drape over your head and it, you know, gets the information or the signals through the skull. This is actually going into the brain. So the detail of information is going to be way more accurate and, um, it's going to be interesting to see what he has to say and where this is going. Yes, indeed. I love it when we have people who know what they're talking about on the show, as opposed to people listening to us. That's right. Um, hey, um, have you been watching any Paralympics? Little bits here and there. We've actually um, have been recording some of it. So we watched a few minutes of rugby the other day. Um, yesterday was um some uh, it wasn't tandem cycling it was cycling in the velodrome but i think it was for c5 c6 so i guess partial paralysis um so these were fairly able-bodied they were riding regular bikes and stuff so we haven't watched a whole lot of it yet but little bits here and there yeah i actually watched uh just this morning i watched uh a a stream from last night of the the women's uh, goalball team playing against Israel, the Canadian women's um, goalball team playing against Israel. And it was, it was really cool. I'd never actually watched a complete goalball game back to front. So uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I've actually never, ever seen goalball. You know, I, I've heard people talk about playing it. And one of our ex-co-workers, Carrie Anton, uh, was a gold medalist at the Australian Olympics in goalball. Yeah, um, so, yeah, it's near and dear to us i just don't know much about it well there dude you just get her to get on that yeah the women's are they they just played last night they won against israel so i don't know who they're playing next but well, i'm sure it, we have it, i'm sure we have it recorded so we'll probably catch yeah, some of it. it tonight or this weekend and, oh sorry i just spoiled it for you then well that's all right you know it's one of those things where i i sort of wish that when i lost my sight in 1995 i would have been told about stuff like blind sports um, yeah. what was available you know as a sighted person i loved being on a bike i could ride for hours and hours i loved mountain biking i, I loved all cycling and you know even goalball might have been something i would have been interested in but just was really never impressed upon me that it was a thing and here we are i'm gonna be <clears throat> older this year and I just don't think flopping around on a court, be having a ball tossed in my head where I want to be. So, <laughs> you know, well, you never know. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting paced game. And, uh, yeah, there is a lot of throwing yourself in the direction of where you think the ball is going and blocking yep. your body. So I can imagine that, uh, you come out with, you come out of a match with a lot of bruises for <laughs> sure even though they say that like you know the pants are padded and they have mm -hmm. knee pads and elbow pads and but they don't wear a helmet or anything and that well, that goal ball looks a, heavy like it's yeah, still take a ball to the face right mm -hmm. it's i think they said it's like a it's over a, a kilogram mm. and it's got bells in it right right yeah so i mean that can't be pleasant to get hit in the head with <laughs> at all <laughs> or the groin so yeah but that does remind that's how pretty much i play volleyball i just throw myself at the ball and just hope <laughs> to the so maybe i could I maybe I could get into goalball i don't know you need that sit volleyball there's such yeah, a I would think, volleyball but you know it's it's it brings up an interesting point like I, I really wonder what body type is sort of the right body type for for goalball because it seems to me like if you're <clears throat> If you're sort of big like a basketball player, you have a, like a, a a large arm span, yeah, and you're sort of gangly. I could see that being an advantage because you know you you have more sort of more reach, reach to cover the goal lock, and, right? Like, mm -hmm. and then I'm thinking like, well, maybe the body mass is good too. Like, so maybe like if you're bigger and heavier, like maybe yeah, you can't move as fast, but you take up more space. So I just I wonder what their strategy is, or maybe. Maybe there's a strategy where like, you know, you have a couple big bulky people on, then you have a couple quicker ones and 
And I know that they like it's it's uh, you know you have sort of a right wing and a left wing and somebody who sort of plays goal, but you're all kind of all playing goal. It's interesting. I this is I've watched one match now, and I really I I do want to learn more about it. So uh, I think I'm going to check out the rest of the yeah the rest of the coverage for the rest of the week. Well, maybe it's time to bring BC Blind Sports back on. It's kind of weird though watching the Olympics because it says, you know, you are watching the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. It's like. We're in 2021. It's just weird to hear them reference the 2020 Olympics because that's when it was supposed to originally be, right? Yeah, it's also weird to watch these matches too with with no crowd, like it's just <laughs> empty, an empty stadium. It's it's it is weird, but you get used to it after a while. Um, but I can't see them. You that's can, true. You can put audience noises in. That's what mixers and engineers are for. <laughs> Actually, you know what? They should have done that. Absolutely. Um, hey, well, hey, dude, before we, we bring on David, uh, there is one other thing that I wanted to talk to rant a, a little bit about. Um, I saw this article uh, come up in my feed, and it's a, it's a study that was done by the University of Toronto. Um, and the name of the study is Adults with Disabilities Face Barriers Accessing Food Leading to Food Insecurity. Uh, and this is a study that the University of Toronto did that they, they just recently published. Um, and it's, uh, they did a lot of this stuff. Um, a few years back, and essentially they interviewed a bunch of uh, adults with disabilities who experienced physical barriers and mobility issues between 2017 and 2018. And one of the researchers actually followed people around to get an idea of their of their everyday routines and what they had to do on a typical day to go get food at a grocery store. And what these researchers came out with was they were just they were shocked at the amount of barriers that would would rise um, from just a, a mere trip to the grocery store, like everything from uh, you know garbage cans that blocked pathways to um, stores that were set up so that where the the aisles were so small that somebody in say a powered wheelchair could barely fit through them. Um, just all kinds of, of barriers uh, across all the different types of disabilities. Well, you know, and the interesting thing about the study too, it, it not only addresses, um, you know, sort of the trip to the grocery store, but it, you know, it looked at the, the, the everything, right? From income and what people, what people could buy um, yeah. to even inaccessibility in the home. Um, you know, they're talking about people who are on limited income or living in subsidized housing. You know, a lot of these people are living in spaces that were that weren't accessible, so they can't even move comfortably yeah. with their with their wheelchair or whatever in their own kitchen. Yeah. Um, you know, that added to you know in, inaccessible stores and limited income. It's just it, it all adds up to food insecurity being a real problem in the disability community way way more so than than able-bodied and even even food banks were proving to be inaccessible in some cases right i wanted to bring this up too because you know we're looking down the barrel of another election uh next month and these are things that you know i don't hear anybody running on no, um, no. these these things need to be fixed and the frustrating thing to me is that I, even just outside of okay like increasing the amount of, of disability benefits that people get. Like if you can't live, if you can't buy food and you can't access your own kitchen, I mean, that's, those are some real problems. It, this affects way more people than just the disability community, but you're right. Nobody's talking about it. It's, it's yeah. infuriating. It, it really is infuriating because this, there's just no call for this, especially we have all the solutions, you know, we can, and I know, okay, I mean, fine, outside of, you know, we won't even get into like, you know, increasing disability benefits, because what, are, you know, I understand that's a, you know, they'll, it's complicated, whatever. But, okay, what about fixing the fact that people can't even get to the grocery store and shop properly if they have some sort of a, a mobility aid or just inaccessibility that way of, of just going to the grocery store, if that's like such an you know enormous chore for somebody with a physical disability to do that's a problem and so and that's just one option like that's going to the grocery store that's either getting a cab or booking your handy dart or whatever the accessible transit is in your city to get to the grocery store 
to make it up and down the aisles, to get your wallet out, to pay. That's just one instance. What about if you're trying to place your grocery orders online and have it home delivered? Well, now we're into the whole web accessibility stuff, right? Like, Well, yeah, for sure. And I was going to bring that up. I mean, that is, you know, that is, seems to me that is the solution uh, or one of a, a potential solution. But the trouble with that, even outside the digital accessibility, is that those services are all expensive. I've totally ordered like off Instacart or something. Uh, and it's, it's expensive. It adds like, I don't know, 10, 15 bucks on sure. your grocery order to get it delivered. Um, and for some people, when they're already on yeah. low income, uh, that's just not a viable solution. Like there should be some sort of a, a government funded program that just allows for free delivery. Like this should just be a, a free service to these people. Um, and yeah, and, but you bring actually the right to bring up the digital accessibility part of that too, because that's absolutely a case. A lot of these, um, you know, skip the dishes, Instacart, Uber mm -hmm. Eats, um, all the, all of these delivery services, I don't know, I don't know how accessible those applications are. And as we know, with any sort of mobile apps like that, uh, they tend to break accessibility quite often because the developers will update the app and they won't pay any attention to accessibility. So, you know, one day somebody's going to wake up and they need their groceries delivered and, oh, look, the app updated. It was accessible yesterday and today it's not. Like these are the types of real world mm -hmm. situations that happen with digital accessibility. It's not, it's, it's just so important and it's so frustrating that people still don't seem to get it. Well, that's why I don't know why. I don't understand why it's still an issue. This is not a new conversation. I don't understand what the barrier is. Are we the people not talking to the right community? You know, is CNIB, as much as they're advocating, or the CCB, or whoever the organization is, are we not talking to the right people? Because, like I said, this is not a new conversation. Why are we still having this conversation? It makes no sense to me. You know, it should I, be dealt with already. And I, and I don't mean to go down too far of a rabbit hole because I do want to bring David on and, and talk about brain-computer interfaces. But this is important because I, here's where I think. This is where I land on this. The problem is, is that people with disabilities are one of the lowest voter turnout demographics in the country. You know, that and 18 to 24-year-olds are... Because you are can't get to the grocery store. How are you going to get to the polling station? That's part <laughs> of the problem. Yes, a accessibility is definitely an issue. But I really feel like it's, it's like voting with your dollars in terms of, uh, you know, driving the retail market. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if politicians don't really think that people with disabilities have much voting power, well, you know what? Those types of issues, they're not really going to have a strong stance on it. That's not going to be the top of their list of things to fix because they don't think that it matters. And right. I don't mean to be really cynical and... and Well, it's 20% of the population has a disability. You know, it's a minority. Right. But I mean, they also don't seem to vote all that often. Right. So I guess, and I again, I don't mean to be cynical and or anything, but I, what I wanted, the point I want to drive home here is that this is, it's so important to get out there and vote and make your voice heard because that's the way you're going to affect change because if you don't vote they're not going to pay attention to you yeah absolutely um you know and i i personally still don't know who or which way i'm going to vote um to be honest i haven't actually done a lot of research or listening to the leaders to find out what their platforms are for the most part. But yeah, I don't know. I yeah, don't see, know. You got your work cut out for you, my friend. Well, now, you know, I've given you your assignment for the week. Go well, find out something I have to do because my wife and I, you know, have requested our mail-in ballot. So, you know, we are going to vote, but I just, I don't know. Maybe what we should do, maybe we should plan an episode in the, in the coming weeks where we take a look at each party and their actual platform in terms of disability and spread the word because maybe nobody else is talking about it and it needs that that needs to be done. Um, we need to know what, yeah, what the platforms are. But anyways, in any case, I encourage everybody to go out there, do your due diligence, do some research 
and vote. Get out there and vote because that's the way that you're going to get people to pay attention to this stuff um, and get some of it starting to change because uh, this is ridiculous. I can't believe we're in 2021. And, and there's still people starving. These issues. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's crazy to me. Yep. Um, I was just, I was gobsmacked at this article. Um, and I'll include this in the show notes because I think it's important for people to take a look at. That's my rant for the day. Excellent. Well, we both had a chance to rant. So yeah, there you go. Feels good. There you go. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, now that now that we feel better, uh, let's talk a little bit about brain computer interfaces and bring David on. All right. Joining us now is David Moses. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Well, let's start out really basic uh, for the listeners and maybe just walk us through what is meant by the term brain-computer interface. Sure. So in general, a brain-computer interface means some kind of device or combination of devices that allows, that enables recording of brain activity and analysis of that activity to, you know, extract some kind of information for some kind of use. So it's very general purpose, anything that, you know, for example, if you wear like a EEG electrode uh, array, so maybe if you're getting like a sleep study or, or something, um, there's plenty of uses for that. Then that's kind of a brain computer interface. There's sensors that sit on your skull and they try to detect your brain activity and try to use that information for something. So that's like a very simple one. And the one, you know, this ranges to much more uh, invasive technology that, and by invasive, I mean like medically, surgically invasive. So electrodes actually implanted in the brain. For example, the Neuropace, which is like a, a deep brain stimulation for epilepsy treatment. So it tries to like stimulate your brain to uh, help prevent seizures. And so that's a type of a, uh, you know, a little more intense brain computer interface, but that's kind of, hopefully that gives the breadth of this technology. So how long in general have we been working on this for? That's a really good question. Um, you know, as you might imagine, this is a fairly new field for some, like for example, the deep brain stimulation that I described for it to be in its current form factor as like a commercially available technology. I think that that's fairly new. Um, I would guess in the past few decades only, um, but I'm sure that the technology of actually sensing brain activity from electrical sensors is, is older. That might be, uh, you know, closer to a century or even more. Sorry, I don't have the exact no, answer. That's for fine. That. Yeah, no, I'm just curious because, um, like I, I like I'm curious about the the technology um, in general and just how like what what parts of the technology has really sort of hindered um, movement in the field. So, for example, like the sensors that you're talking about, like did they need to get like to be able to build be built small enough in order to get implanted or or was it sort of the the algorithms that that we're using to connect to decode um the different the, the different brain signals like did that need to be developed or was it a combination of a, just a bunch of different technologies that needed to sort of fall into place before we could move forward with the, some of this stuff yeah i think it's definitely a multi-pronged um approach and i think a lot of it is hardware and a lot of it is software too so on the hardware side you know these some of these especially the ones that require surgical implantation you know these have been tested in animals you know non-human primates for example or mice before reaching the the point where we can have clinical trials with this technology for for humans and so that entire process and all the while, you know, the, the technology is improving. Smaller electrodes, perhaps better materials, so you can get better signals, so you can get more channels, just get more breadth and quality of information from the brain. And then also on the software side, I mean, it, it's in some ways it kind of mirrors the 
speech recognition field, which is, for example, when you talk in your phone and it knows uh, what you want to say, or even like the text dictation um, from earlier. So th that technology, some of the principles underlying it have been around for a long time, but really it's the increase in computational efficiency, you know, more advanced uh, chips, so that's kind of on the hardware side, but also more advanced techniques on the software side, better algorithms. And that's really enabled the big breakthroughs in this kind of technology that we've seen. And it's somewhat similar for the statistical analyses that are required to um, process brain activity and, and interpret it. We've seen articles in the past that have had devices that, like you previously mentioned, are kind of mounted or you wear over your head and it senses through your skull. But your technology seems to access a part of the brain that I don't know, has it ever actually been accessed before to accomplish what you guys have accomplished with, you know, being able to produce 50 words per minute um, using your thoughts? Yeah, so there's a few things that I'd like to clarify. One is uh, the, the vocabulary size was 50 words. Right. So we were only at about 15 words per minute on average. And um, also, it is, I know that it is a brain computer interface, but it, this is, uh, okay. So a lot of times we get these uh, kind of doomsday or not doomsday, but kind of conspiracy theory style, like interpretations of the work that it can be used for interrogations and, right. and things like that, government, bad actors, et cetera. So I just want to clarify, you know, I know you, you weren't, um, it's not entirely inaccurate to say that like the person is thinking to try to control the, the device, but really the way it's working is that we are recording from the part of the brain that normally controls the vocal tract. So we've actually had, you mentioned that has this brain part of the brain been accessed before it has in some of our previous studies, just not with a person with severe paralysis. Okay. So we found that this part of the brain is really tied to, you know, how we orchestrate the vocal tract because it's very complicated actually to speak, even though it feels effortless for us. Um, there's a lot of coordination of small muscles that have to happen to kind of shape, you know, the air we exhale into into words and and so this part of the brain that kind of coordinates that that's the part that we are recording from with our participant in this study and so you know the participant has to try to speak that's the point i'm trying to get to oh, okay it's definitely not you know any kind of mind reading <laughs> to that. yeah i just want to make sure yeah no absolutely because you know yesterday when i was you know doing th some thinking about this show and how we were going to approach it I was thinking, wow, this would never work for me because I would be thinking a pizza, beer, pizza, beer, pizza, beer, and I'd never get anything accomplished, right? So <laughs> I'm glad you could clarify that. Yeah, no worries. Now, you'd have to be wanting to say pizza, beer over and over again. <laughs> then maybe that's what would come out. Wow. Uh, but there's one other aspect, just briefly, of your question that I think uh, I'd like to address, which is, you know, what's the difference between centers placed on the outside and us in this study having to go, you know, require surgery to implant these electrodes. The, the, the basic explanation is that the signals are much better right. if you can get inside the skull because the skull, I mean, it is great and serves great purpose for us to protect our brains, which is, of course, incredibly important. But when it comes time for trying to acquire brain activity as part of a brain computer interface, it actually acts as a you know, signal attenuator basically for high frequency. So what this means is some of the very information rich brain patterns um, and brain activity that, that gets lost and the signal is much harder to detect when you use sensors on the outside of the skull. So that's why when we go invasive like this, actually in the skull and on the surface of the brain, we get, you know, really good access to signals that we find are related to all kinds of things, including speech, as we show in this study. So I'm just kind of curious about the, the different parts of the brain and, and the different work that's being done in, in different fields, because we've heard for a while about work that's that's being done, say, in the in the motor cortex, where you can plug in and 
you know, working on being able to do things like um, move artificial limbs or move a cursor across the screen, that type of thing. Um, is, is that a very, very different process than say accessing the, the speech center and doing the work that you guys are doing? Is it, is it a lot more complicated trying to, to, to work in that, in that vocal center? Or is, is the premise essentially the same? It's just the algorithm that, that you're working with to decode the signals has to be different than say the work that's being done in the motor cortex. Yeah, there are a few, I think, key differences. One is the actual neural interface device that we use is different than what's traditionally been done in the motor cortex. Motor cortex. And especially with this most recent paper from the Shinoi group, where they show, is by Frank Willett and, and others, where they show that you can actually decode imagined handwriting. It's really, really awesome paper. And that, in that study and in some similar studies, they use what's called microelectrode arrays, which are kind of penetrating electrodes. So these you kind of stick into the brain and they, like thin electrodes, actually penetrate a little bit deeper into the brain to record signals. And you can get really, really nice signals this way. Um, in our study, we use a technique called electrocorticography or ECOG. And this is actually the sensors placed on the surface of the brain. So there's kind of like circular like disc electrodes that you place in an array. And this has some advantages and disadvantages compared to their, uh, to the like microelectrode array approach. We get more coverage. So because speech is, is a pretty broad, you know, there's lots of brain areas implicated in speech. And even within small brain areas or like specific brain areas, there's still a lot of of surface area that you need to cover to like get all of the relevant activity basically. And this, a lot, I'm sure more research will clarify this further, but for us, the point I'm trying to get at is that the type of a technology that we use gives us access to a little bit more brain areas, even though we don't get single neuron resolution like you would with microelectrode arrays. So that's, that's one big difference. And I think the other one to emphasize is, yeah, the speech is, because there's so many degrees of freedom in, time, in terms of how you can produce speech sounds and all of the different shapes that your vocal tract can take and the dynamics associated with articulation. You know, this is a very complicated process and we think it is indeed more complicated than two-dimensional cursor control or like imagined hand or arm movements in, in the kind of 2D space. Now, I'm not saying that uh, you know, what they're working on, these other groups have it easy or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, there's a, I think there's a reason why it took this long for the first kind of speech brain computer interface that tries to go directly to attempted words and sentences like what we've done. It's, you know, this is kind of a new frontier. And that's one of the reasons it's so exciting is because this is one of the first demonstrations that this is possible. And so there are definitely a lot of challenges, a lot of complexities, but you know, it's pretty promising first step in our opinion. What is the process for a person who has been approved to go through this, this study, this research, you know, become a, a subject for you guys to do these tests and trials with? Like what sort of training is involved to get them to be able to produce words? Yeah, so I think what you're referring to is after the full recruitment process, because that's a Right. That's a long and meticulous process to make sure that candidates will be a good fit for the study. But, you know, after surgical implantation of the sensors and, you know, the, the participant recovers and is ready to now start our tasks, it's actually, we tried to keep the tasks very simple. So to train the system, they, you know, right now there was only 50 words in this study. So basically they would see one of the words and they would get a little visual cue uh, that would tell them exactly when to start saying the word. And so they, the participant tries to say the word when he gets this cue, and then we move on to the next word. And we just do this, you know, basically thousands of times so that we get lots of samples of him trying to say each of the 50 words. And then offline, we train these kind of advanced computational models 
that try to relate subtle patterns in the sensors. There's 128 channels that we're recording from simultaneously. So we try to relate this kind of population level uh, activity across all the sensors with the speech targets. And then once we train that model, we can actually detect his attempts to speak and try to figure out what he was trying to say in real time. And that's what we used eventually when we show him sentences and he tries to recreate those sentences, you know, by saying each word in the sentence. Right. So AI must be super beneficial in, in trying to predict what the subject is trying to say. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. So it must be really challenging because the brain is, is still very much a mystery in, in a lot of ways. Um, we still don't really know just how it exactly works. Um, does that kind of play into the research as well? Like you, in, in some ways you're just kind of working in the dark? Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of these types of research studies, you know, you'll, as you say, the brain is not completely understood. We, the amount that we know about it seems to be increasing every year with, you know, with research and stuff. That's where all the, all the tax dollars for neuroscience research goes, trying to better understand the brain and you know neurons and everything all aspects of of you know neural processing but yeah in terms of this study i think a lot of it was kind of trusting what we knew from before with some of our previous patients which i can talk about if if there's interest you know we had previous participants in previous studies who were not paralyzed and we could figure out some things about speech and how it's represented in the brain with those participants. And so we just kind of trusted that research and trusted the device and the methodology of recording these, these brain data. And even though we don't fully understand every aspect of what's happening, and of course the decoding system isn't perfect, but we are able to see reliable patterns and we are able to, you know, in some ways exploit those patterns to enable decoding. And that's, um, that's what gave us the results that we saw. And so like how many different field, and you, you may or may not know the answer to this question, but like, so how many different fields are we talking about? Like, you know, you guys are working on speech. I know that people are working on sort of motor control. Uh, are there other, other, other studies going on uh, with different parts of the brain other than those? Well, I know before one of the very popular brain computer interfaces, even you know, also for communication is, there was this kind of what's called a P300 speller, which is basically where you attend to a screen and there's different letters flash. It's a visual paradigm and you're trying to attend to letters that you want to say, that you want to type while the screen is flashing. And some part of the visual signal can get recognized by a system and used to, to decode. So that, that did use a different uh, brain area and that could be done non-invasively. But as you might imagine, you know, wanting to spell things out in that manner is, is pretty tedious. It's pretty laborious. Um, so I think that that is, you know, I'm not sure what the latest is in that field, but it seems like definitely the handwriting one that I briefly mentioned before, that's kind of the state of the art for the like, for the imagined hand and arm movement decoding. And I, I think that is mostly mostly it. And then our now we're hoping, you know, speech will also be seen as a viable control signal for communication BCI. I wanna I wanna step back a little bit and go back to talking about the sort of the surface level brain waves um, with the with just sort of the electrodes on the on the head versus the actual surgical procedure um, is, is the intrusive nature of of the the surgery and stuff is that kind of what slows the, the research down and do you ever see a, a place where we can get the the sensors sensitive enough where we can just do away with the intrusive part of that and just work with like the skull cap with with the electrodes on it uh, is there is there a day where we could maybe just go with that yeah, that's, that's definitely great questions. Um, I think for the first question about what is kind of 
making this a little slower than maybe it could be. I think it is because it is invasive. There is risk. It's, it is brain surgery after all. So there's, there's definitely some risk. Um, I think from what we've seen, these kinds of surgical procedures are pretty, you know, well tolerated. Like there, there doesn't seem to be that many adverse events. Uh, although I'm sure there's some literature that, you know, can give you exactly the frequency, but to the best of my knowledge, it seems that the risk is fairly low given how intensive a procedure it is. But still, you know, these things should be taken seriously and the FDA and, and other regulatory bodies really make sure that the participants are protected. And, and so, yeah, it, it's definitely a kind of a slow process, even though you know, I'm not complaining or anything. I'm glad that there's kind of regulatory oversight to make sure that volunteers aren't abused or put into risky situations. But in terms of your other question, there are a lot of research groups and actually companies now that are trying to improve, you know, non-invasive signal acquisition um, from the brain. And so this is not just the kind of EEG electrodes that you can put on, but there is now using spectroscopy. So for example, one is this, you know, infrared spectro uh, spectroscopy. And so what this technology does is it's something that sits, it's, you can imagine like a helmet, that you wear and it shoots kind of basically lasers or not lasers, I should say just light, light in certain frequency uh, with, uh, at a certain frequency into your brain. And depending on the blood oxygenation, it actually reflects, you know, diffracts light in different ways. And you can kind of use this to measure neural activation in different brain regions. It's not completely unlike a functional MRI that, that uh, uses blood oxygenation to determine, you know, neural activation. So basically this, this is another way to try and get really good signals out of the brain, but it's, it's still very difficult and that technology just isn't there yet. I don't know if it will ever get there. Um, it might, you know, it's, it's really hard to say, but it's just such an incredibly difficult problem, but there's still some companies, um, Kernel, I think, is the name of a company that is actually manufacturing these helmets. Or I don't know if it's available to purchase yet, but you can wear them and it tells you some, some pretty broad things like your attentiveness to a task or, um, you know, I don't know exactly what their product offers, but I know that you can get some information out is the, the kind of summary, but you, it doesn't appear that you can get the same level of information as you could get from these invasive recording methodologies. With these invasive processes, do, is there a lifespan to these? Like, you know, I'm assuming the patients go home and, you know, at some point these implants have to be removed and replaced or how does that work? Yeah, that's still being studied. I mean, that, that, that is a really great question for us in our clinical trial, our arrays are approved for up to five years for testing. Wow. So we can test for, you know, up to five years with a, in a participant. And I know that actually just extremely recently, maybe even today, a study just came out summarizing a five-year study with the microelectrode arrays. And, you know, they saw pretty favorable results too. So right now it seems about five years, is, it seems to be the limit of, of what we know. There may be more information from this like a neuropace device that I described earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but I think even they, yeah, I'm not sure if they've shown anything longer than five years in a single person. Yeah, so I think longevity is definitely an aspect. I think it's just, we'll have to see more research um, right. to figure that out, yeah. Do you think we'll get to a point, maybe in our lifetimes, where we'll be able to access this sort of systems that you guys are doing on a handheld device, mobile device? I know it's, it's, it's possible, yeah, in our lifetime. I know, for example, Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, they are trying to, this is basically one of their goals. They wanna have brain implants that send signals via Bluetooth to your phones and that you can you know, interact with. Hmm. I think right now, for us, our focus is definitely on, it's definitely on assisting people who are unable to speak. Mm -hmm you know, people who have severe paralysis. And the, 
method that we actually get the information out, be it to a computer or a handheld device, you know, I think that if you have a reliable way to to understand the brain signals and to extract the brain signals, then I think it, it could be possible to access some of the decoded information from a handheld device. You know, for us, our main focus is definitely on you know, trying to re-enable speech. So be that through a tablet or a computer or however we, f we feel the best way for it to be done, then that's probably what we're going to try to do. Yeah, stuff like that's always interesting, right? Um, there's, there's always people that are working on sort of, um, you know, co commercially viable applications to, to different technology that, you know, if they crack that code, it can benefit the people that are working on, say, the more focused, you know, assistive technology part of that, that technology. Um, but so, so to, to sort of, um, to sort of extend off that, um, because I know that, you know, we talked here on the show um, about um, some brain computer interfaces, probably in our first year of, of podcasting, and that was about four or five years ago. Um, and we, at the time, there were commercially available um, devices or headsets that that you could buy where you could do like, you know, really, really basic things like you could train uh, a toy car to, you know, move back and forth or left and right um, using your quote, you know, brain. Um, and it was just, you know, it, it was just training the, the again, the algorithm to, to steer the car. Um, what's what's that space like now? Has there been a lot more products that have come out? Um, based on the improvement in technology or and and sort of are we going to get to a space where you know we're going to see more and more of these of these headsets available that's a great question yeah i forgot about those i think there was also at some point a pretty sure at one point i saw an eeg controlled like wheelchair mm -hmm. someone could at least navigate four directions using a like a headset or a band or something like that, that they that they wore and just like thinking about the some representation of the direction they wanted to go, maybe they mapped it to some keyword, so or, or something like that. But yeah, so I, I do think that this technology only stands to improve as perhaps some of the signal processing techniques improve, and definitely as the algorithms improve. You know, machine learning is huge right now, of course, and so there's lots of developments from all kinds of fields that that can be applicable to neural decoding actually. So even in our study here, we used some techniques that were kind of pioneered for speech recognition and even image classification that we were able to apply to actually decoding the neural signals into words. Now, again, I just don't know how, I don't know how far this, these kinds of technologies can go. There really hasn't been anything to show that you can get a lot of really high fidelity signals out of the brain if you don't actually go through the skull. So um, maybe for basic applications, those are improving, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if you could get something like, you know, re restored speech from, from that kind of interface. So it kind of sounds like it's still like, you know, it was a little bit of a novelty item then, and it sounds like it's kind of still in that space now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not super sure. I haven't been keeping up too closely with that, but I haven't seen any like big breakthroughs that have come across kind of what I've been seeing. Well, if anybody does it, good old Elon will, right? <laughs> well, his will be invasive too. So he's not even going for that. He'll need you brain surgery to get his device. Yeah, well, and you probably need to go to space to do it too. So. <laughs> um, so I'm just curious, what what got you interested in this field? Yeah, you know, it's kind of I don't know. I feel like a lot of these things are a little unpredictable. Yeah, I didn't know. I can go kind of way back briefly in high school. I started getting interested in in software and programming. I was on the computer science team which was, you know, that was fun. I got to college, to undergrad, and I ended up going to bioengineering, but still some interest in computer science. 
towards the end, I started getting more interested in the brain and, and all that, although I still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Then when I started my PhD at, it's a joint bioengineering program between UC Berkeley and UCSF. And I kind of wanted to do the arm reaching, like motor control, like robotic arm kind of thing. That's, that's kind of where I was at. But I took a seminar and I saw uh, Dr. Chang give a, give a presentation about speech. And it was, yeah, I was very interested. So I asked him if I could do a rotation. And that's, that's, basically, that's basically it. You know, I, I did my PhD in his lab and I stayed on afterwards and, and I'm still, still in the lab today. So it started out with doing a lot of, I was really interested in speech decoding with people who can speak because we, our first participants were not, uh, they were not paralyzed and they were kind of volunteers who were getting treated for epilepsy. And so while they were undergoing that treatment, they volunteered to participate in speech studies. That's what a lot of our findings have been over the past decade is from these, you know, really selfless volunteers who've kind of graciously spent their time working with us. And so I, was very interested in speech decoding throughout all my PhD and published a few papers on that. And then this opportunity came up to be, you know, kind of participate in and eventually, you know, oversee a lot of the, the clinical trial, the speech side of the research for the trial. And that's really been quite a great opportunity. And so, yeah, I'm still here, still really interested in it and definitely still want to keep pushing the field forward here. Well, it's an amazing field. It's super interesting. Uh, and I have to, again, thank you for, for coming on and uh, helping us sort some of this stuff out because it's, you know, it's fascinating to read. And it's always really interesting when news of these little breakthroughs hit the mainstream media um, and and people sort of take notice. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's it's great to, to have you on and, and actually be able to explain some of this stuff to us. Well, and I think too, we have to thank the volunteers, especially, right? There's only so much you can do with primates and mice. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you, there was a, a really nice, um, kind of in some ways, tribute to our participant. Uh, he goes by the nickname Poncho in this, in the New York Times, who describes his journey as he, you know, when he became paralyzed at such a young age and then eventually part you know became a participant in our trial and he's just truly incredible you know we owe so much to him he's the best colleague anyone could ask for well it's volunteers that allow you guys to push the science forward right and you know change the world for others so yeah definitely Thanks i mean that's it. also it's really to be in the situation of the the epilepsy volunteers right in the hospital who are in kind of a vulnerable and uh, not vulnerable, but they're in a very kind of unknown and, you know, it's kind of scary position where they're being, you know, they have to undergo two brain surgeries and get, try to get their condition treated. Um, and for them to volunteer to kind of advance the science, even though they know it won't personally benefit them. Yeah. It's also very applaudable. Well, listen, um, you'll have to come back on uh, in the next breakthrough or in the next 50 words. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, when we get to 100. That's right. No, I mean, it's really my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks to both of you for having me on. Man, I don't know. Connecting, being able to connect your my the phone to my brain is, that's a chilling thought. <laughs> it is it's pretty scary, scary, huh? Yeah. There is a lot. It, it might be comforting to know and it might be a good time for me to you know, give a shout out to there's, there's some groups that are kind of pioneering this, this discussion over uh, neuroethics, mm -hmm. which kind of spans to both privacy of brain data. How do you make sure that participants in these studies are treated properly? And also, you know, future proofing against you know, potential, I guess, yeah. you know, bad things that can arise from, from this kind of technology. So there, there definitely are, definitely are people talking about this. So those discussions you might find interesting and helpful. Yeah, no doubt. Um, the ethics of all of this and yeah, it is actually a really fascinating conversation too, but that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Before we let you go, um, it, do you have anything to plug? A any, a, you know, do you want to 
give a shout out to your Twitter feed or anything like that? I actually just made a Twitter to post uh, the paper being published. So I don't even know. I don't know if I should be doing that or okay. like, I guess I don't know much about Twitter, to be honest. Sure. I just kind of get on to, to say it. But my Twitter is at David Moses. It's like at and then the word at David Moses. Perfect. Like, there's another David Moses who got there before me. Um, <laughs> They're always definitely in. also, I would like to shout out to the other two co-lead authors of the study, Sean Metzger and Jesse Leo. Um, they both are grad students in the lab and yeah, they were essential to the, to the work. So just a quick shout out to them as well. Well, listen, thanks again for all your work in this field. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly important field and, um, you know, it, it's going to make a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. Um, once we sort of drive the football forward for sure. I really hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, thanks, David. David. Whoa. Okay. Well, I feel smarter. Really? I don't. <laughs> I, I just, it would be really interesting at some point to bring on one of the people who have volunteered for one of these types of studies, types of research for brain computer interfaces that have gone through the, the processes, have gone through the brain surgery, um, just to get that, to get that perspective. Dude, they've been through enough. They <laughs> subject them to our show as well. Wow, have some mercy. They had brains. They were worse than brain surgery. Sensors <laughs> planted on their brain. Give them a break. Just yeah. Let them watch Netflix. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Uh, no, yeah, that is. It's it really is incredible to to see the work that's being done. This is why it makes me angry. Like guys like Elon Musk and that other asshole that went to space. Uh, you know what, like, just shut up, like, stop. Why are we wasting money on space when, you know, we have so much to learn about the brain. We haven't figured that out there. There's so much work that could be being done in making lives, people's lives better. Uh, but no, we're blowing all this money, just shooting billionaires into space. And back yeah, I saw, I saw a tweet on Twitter this morning and I didn't pull up the link, but, um, there's a prosthetic hand that basically slides on like a glove. Um, and again, you know, I don't know if it attaches to your nerves at some point and the glove attaches to that attachment, but you know, there's a lot of work being done when it comes to brain computer interfaces, when it comes to prosthetics. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an exciting field. Well, it really is. And this, this, and even outside of, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe we should do another episode one day, one day soon on like, I don't know, speculative, uh, technology and stuff that's sort of on the cutting edge, because even stuff like exoskeletons, really light exoskeletons that mm -hmm. somebody with say cerebral palsy could use that would actually just assist in movement and stuff. Like we could literally be talking about like helping people walk again or, Yep. You know, there's all kinds of, of stuff that's going on that's that is really sort of at, at its infancy that needs funding and and dollars to really drive that forward. And uh, it would just be nice to see some of that money that's just floating out there in the world that people are just blowing on stupid stuff <laughs> uh, used for for like really valuable research. See, I'm just, I'm venti today. You are venti today. I'm ranty. I'm in a bad mood, apparently. Well, you got meetings last night and you got stuff right. going on after work today. So, I know. Yeah. Busy, you busy. need some Rob busy. time. Yeah, true. True. You need to escape into a fantasy world. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that works. I haven't played, I haven't, I haven't sat down and played a video game for a while. Yeah. Jeez, that's what I'll do this weekend. There you go. Well, that's another thing too. Think about that. Brain computer interface, like gaming. If you could just, oh, wow. Whoa. It'd be like the matrix. Well, at some point, you know, it's probably bound to happen. You know, they've, they've got AR and VR and that's just going to get better and better at some point or some new technology will surpass it. And yeah, that'd be crazy. If you could like move around, like if you're playing a first person shooter in like a virtual reality headset or goggles and you'd not even have to like move a mouse to move you would just think about moving or oh, wow that could be that could be crazy it is crazy see that's where i wish i was 20 
<laughs> to be like, oh man, I could, I could possibly make it to where, to like where essentially we're living in the matrix. Like you, right. that's a viable possibility. You just plug in and it's just completely immersive. Like that would be pretty cool. Well, next time you're given the opportunity to take the blue pill or the red pill, take the blue pill. Yeah. Oh, wait, which one is that again? Because I, I haven't watched The Matrix for a while. Is the blue pill the one where you you come out of The Matrix? Or yeah, that's where you stay? You go into The Matrix. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. I'd take that one. And I would have taken that one. I would not come out of The Matrix. <laughs> like, unless it was really bad. Like, I guess if I if I was working in a cubicle in The Matrix, like, that would be depressing. Like, if I had a shit job <laughs> that I hated and I was in a virtual reality world like The Matrix, like, that's a bummer. Like... Yeah, I think I saw but Matrix 4 is coming out or being it made is. or something. Yeah, yeah it is. Totally. Uh, I got to watch 1, 2, and 3. I don't think I ever I saw know. 2 or 3. <laughs> I just, I don't know, man. They're just, they're out of ideas in Hollywood. They're just, oh, absolutely. They're just, we'll make another Ghostbusters and we'll another Matrix. Yeah, I know. There's no creativity in Hollywood just, anymore. They just keep re rebooting and rehashing yep. old franchises, which is, is super weird to me. Yep, yep. Like, look at the 80s. We had all these original properties. This is where all these properties came from. And they were all original. It's not like they were just remakes from stuff that they were doing in the 50s. Yep. So, I don't know. Come on, people. That's right. No problem. We had a pandemic. You've been spending all your days at home. You couldn't come up with some original ideas. How many more reality shows do we need about singing or dancing or <laughs> dating or Zero. divorcing? Or just, or... <laughs> or just sitting at a house. Oh, don't even get me started on the Housewives of Atlanta or Jersey or whatever. I've watched one episode because I was down here in the Guitar Dungeon one day and I was doing something on my computer, playing guitar or something. And it was just on in the back and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And it was like, yeah, Housewives of Jersey or something. I was like, oh my God, like how can this be made into a TV show? I know. It just makes no sense to me. What a waste of time and money. Yeah, exactly. See? There's too much money being wasted in this world. There is. God, at least build an underwater base. <laughs> well, you know, it's, base. you know what's next. I saw, I saw something this morning, I think, on Google News that the International Space Station is soon to be retired. And so they're going to probably have to start building a new one. What? <laughs> yep. Didn't we just put that thing up there? Like, <laughs> what, what do you mean retired? Well, like, it's obviously been bombarded by asteroids or whatever, or all the space shit that's floating around out there. And, yeah. yeah, I guess. I, I mean, guess I guess if it's cool. breaking, I guess yeah. if it's breaking. I mean, I guess you want to replace it, but still, I mean, what did? Well, like, why? Like, what? What did we even do that for? Like, what did we get out of the International Space Station? I don't know. We didn't even get. Nobody even got to go up there, other than like you know a couple astronauts from Russia and some for the U.S. And whatever happened, they just went up there. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's weird. That's super weird. I want to know what we got out of the International <laughs> Space Station. If that was worth the billions of dollars. It took to build the thing. Well, I think they figured out how to grow plants in space. I think they were doing some stuff like that up there. I guess, yeah. I know. I, mean, I think oh, yeah. I heard like they took some ants up there to see what the, the effect of ants are. And yeah, it just <laughs> it just baffles me. As we're we're a really dumb species. It can be. Yep. It just we yeah. Why? <laughs> yeah, let's leave it on that note. All right, fine. Uh, hey, Ryan. Rob. Where can people find us? They can find us online at atbanter.com. They can also drop us an email if they so desire um, at cowbell at atbanter.com. And they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I feel like this episode, we should just call it Old Men Yelling at Clouds. <laughs> We're just grumpy today. Oh, grumpy old men today. That's all right. Oh yeah, we need to be back to get to inject us with some of that youthful, youthful energy that I'm sure they don't have after a month of fishing. Yeah, maybe. We shall see. How many? How much fish can you possibly eat? Like, if you were fishing for a month. Oh, like, he says his, his freezer's full, and he's still got more coming. He doesn't know where he's going to put it, so he's got fish for a year. I mean, ugh. We'd want to eat fish for a year. <laughs> I know. I'm not a big fish person. My wife loves fish, loves salmon. Mm. And I'll eat it once in a while. But yeah, give me steak any day. 
Yeah, I mean, I could eat maybe eat fish like maybe once every couple of weeks, but I mean, for years worth of fish, he's gonna have to eat that every day. <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> well, you know, fish tacos and halibut steaks, and I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, salmon steaks and baked salmon, and I don't know, maybe salmon soufflés and Ugh. tuna salad, mm. tuna casseroles. Remember those exactly. growing up? Not catching tuna because no, oh, he got tuna too. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. Those things big. Tuna. Oh, wait, are those small? Those are sardines. I don't know my fish. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Remember? Research. I just remember tuna casseroles growing up. You know, tuna and peas and macaroni and breadcrumbs. Did your mom ever make that? Wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wild. <laughs> I think in the eighties or seventies. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Growing up eating liver. Got to eat liver. It was affordable meat. Yeah, I never had to eat liver. I've never, I don't ever had any liver. Liver, no. Oh, you are so lucky. I, you never. I still gag on that stuff. I does that even a thing anymore? Because oh, sure. Is it? People oh, yeah. still you can liver? actually order it in restaurants. No kidding, eh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've never heard of anybody eating liver in like recently at all. Yeah, huh. I, haven't, I haven't looked in two years because I haven't been in a restaurant in two years, but. I think White Spot even used to have liver and onions on their dinner menus. Oh yeah. no! Doesn't cowbell at AT Banter if anybody has any liver stories that they share with us. That's right. Or they want to vent. Apparently, we're the venting show. So if they want you have something to rant about and complain about. Let us know. We'll rent. We'll we'll complain and rant for you. Sounds good. Uh, all right. Well. That is about going to do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. Big thanks to David Moses for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 